So good morning and welcome again to the vine. Are we good, Taylor? Check one, two, one, two, one, two. All right. All right. So um, can you give me a little bit more in the house, bud, just so I can hear myself just a little bit better? Check one, two. All right, so we're in, there we go, we're in Matthew 18. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Um, let's see, yeah, there we go. Would like to preach with my notes, that would be good. Thank you, Autumn. Uh, so this morning's a little different. Typically, it wouldn't be the uh, Nielsen show. I'm here with Autumn and I and my boys in the tech booth. Uh, but we've got some colds in the house, and uh, so we just want to play it safe. So it's Nielsen's only in the, in the building this morning. Um, typically, we would want to use more volunteers beyond just my family, but a uh, little insider information there. That's what's going on today. And so you can pray that uh, our COVID tests are negative when it comes to having sniffles and that kind of stuff in the house All right, Matthew 18, starting in verse 10. We've been trekking our way through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to speed up because the end of the book of Matthew has these large narrative chunks, big parables, and so um, we've got 10 more chapters to go, but I think it's going to go a little bit faster, and we're just going to continue to see what Matthew has recorded for us in terms of the life of Jesus and all that we can glean from it. Well, as we see in, in, in Matthew, Jesus was a bit of a celebrity. And we live in a celebrity culture. Have you ever, like, been around a true celebrity? You know how people kind of act a little weird around celebrities? Like, they get all nervous. They don't know what to say. They say silly things. Um, I had a brief stint with a celebrity. Now, there's a difference between celebrity and Christian celebrity. Uh, Christian celebrity is a lot less than like worldly celebrity. But I was in a band 15 years ago that traveled around um, with an artist. A lot of you wouldn't even have heard of him. But 15 years ago, if you listened to Christian radio all the the time, the guy that I was with as as a member of his band was a Christian celebrity. And he was all over the radio. He had the number one played Christian song of 2005. Like, this is a lifetime ago for me, um, 16 years ago. And, uh, but I remember he would, after the concerts, you know, there'd typically be a line where he would sign things and interact with the fans. And he would come back after that and talk to us on the bus and just tell us some crazy things about things that people would say because they're nervous about being around a celebrity. And people get nervous. They say weird things. It's just kind of nuts. My wife, Kim, had a, a, a brief brush with a true, not a Christian celebrity, but like a worldly celebrity. And she was at a conference out in California when she was in uh, PA school, and, or I think she was a PA, or one of the two. She was at a PA conference, a phys- physician's assistant conference. My wife was Again, also like a former life, like I was a musician on the road. She was a physician's assistant when she wasn't uh, part of a classical Christian school. That's what she does today. But in her former life as a physician's assistant, uh, she went to this big conference and at a really fancy hotel. And they're at some table, like doing something like a, 
like, uh, you know how like, they have different um, tables set up at conferences? Uh, exhibitors, that's the word. She was an exhibitor at this big conference, and they're near this uh, door in the stairwell, which would be like a pass-through for people to travel around in the hotel. And it's a fancy hotel where people would stay there that are famous. And they're sitting at this table, and there's a, a door right there, and the door opens, and out walks Tom Cruise. And he is just passing by to go to some engagement, staying at this hotel, and he's right there, like, from here to there. And he walks out, and he looks him in the eye, and he smiles, that Tom Cruise smile, and he's got that magnetism, you know, that's just radiating out of him. And they're just like, oh my gosh, it's Tom Cruise. And he smiles, and he says, hello. And they can still see that. My, my wife, Kim, can just still see that in her mind, that he said hello to them and kept moving. And that was her brush with celebrity. So being around celebrities, and we live in a celebrity culture, it has an impact on us. It makes us feel things. It makes us act weird. It makes us ask weird questions. We live in a celebrity culture. And we're going to see in our text for today that Jesus has something to say about celebrity culture and what that can do to a Christian culture or a Christian community. Said more positively, Jesus is going to call the church to embrace Christians who are the opposite of celebrities. The church is called to embrace people that are opposite of celebrities. Those who are lowly in the world. Those who have no powerful influence, no standing in the hierarchy, in the ranks of the world. Jesus is going to call us to reject the hierarchies of the world to create a more beautiful world in the church. So let's look at verse 10 of chapter 18. I'm going to read it for us. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now this is a a key in understanding our verses for this morning. We have to focus in on what Jesus means by little ones. Little ones, okay? So as we all want to be good students of the Bible, we always have to remember context. So if we look to the context of verse 10, we'll probably be informed a little bit about what Jesus means by little ones. Because with just verse 10, we don't really know. But context always informs us on a singular verse, right? So as we're trying to be good students of the Bible, we always have to read our Bibles in context. 
Always have to read in context. So let's do that. Let's practice being good students of the Bible, good interpreters of the Bible. And we'll remember that last week, Houston dealt with this a little bit. Now, it wasn't the main point of his sermon that he preached so well last week. But it does have more weight in our text for today. So let's go back and see what Jesus means by this term, little ones. Look back at verse 1 with me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So that's the, that's the agenda here. That's the overarching theme. Jesus is addressing that question. Who's the greatest? The disciples are thinking military power, political power, and they want to be on the side of greatness. They want to be on the side of the celebrity, powerful, hierarchy. They're thinking hierarchy, right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what do we learn here? Super important. Greatness as defined by Jesus is pursuing the opposite of celebrity culture. Greatness is radical humility. Humility like a child. What is, a child has no power, no influence, bottom of the food chain, vulnerable. And Jesus says that's greatness. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's a requirement. Did you catch it in verse 3? You'll never enter. That's what he said. Unless there's a condition, right? There's a condition. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you embrace radical humility like a child with no standing, with no power, completely vulnerable, needy, wanting. Remember how I just prayed? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying you have to embrace your neediness, your lowliness, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 3, right? So greatness equals humility. Humility equals greatness. But then verse 5 comes around. And here's where we see it. Okay, look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So there's unity between those that are deeply humbled and Jesus. If you receive someone that's really lowly, like a child, it's like you're receiving Jesus because they're so united, right? Now, what most scholars think that Jesus is doing here in verse 5 is turning from this literal, literal child that he grabbed out of the crowd and put in the midst of them to give them a, a lesson, to teach them a lesson, and now shifts to make children a metaphor for the Christian life, okay? Like, whoever receives one such child, like someone who's like a child, 
one such, such as a child, like that, right? Whoever receives someone who becomes like a child in their humility, like whoever receives someone, not just literal children, but whoever receives someone with childlike humility in my name receives me. That's how we should understand little ones. And that's what he does in verse 6. So Jesus isn't talking just about, it's really important for us to understand verse 10. He's not just talking about literal children, though they are included because they're often marginalized and weak and lowly and needy. But he's talking about those who believe in Jesus and have lowly status in the world. Okay? Now you can see why this would be important for church and community in the church. Okay? So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See to it that you do not despise Christians who have a lowly, needy status. Now remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the leaders of the church. He's talking to his disciples, the first church planters. And Matthew 18, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, is all about church community. It's all about healthy relationships. It's all about what does it mean to have a church that's beautiful, that's a city on a hill, that's distinct from the ways of the world. Well, what are the ways of the world? The ways of the world are, if you're lowly, if you have no status, we don't have time for you. We might give lip service to how we want to be all loving and, and helpful and gracious to those that have nothing to offer. But for the most part, those people, especially if you're a Christian in this context, in the ancient world, you're on the margins. So where are they going to go? Jesus is saying, don't despise or look down on those Christians in your community who are super lowly in the eyes of the world. Why? Because they're loved and wanted by me. He's saying, those are my kind of people. And we want to be sure as Christians, especially leaders of a church, that we love what Jesus loves, that we hate what Jesus hates, that we value what Jesus values. He's saying, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. There should be no favoritism in the church. Don't despise the little ones. Don't despise those that have nothing to offer. Don't, don't despise those who you can't use to climb some type of a social ladder. Like favoritism in the church, listen there, favoritism in the church destroys healthy community. Favoritism in your city group destroys healthy city group. And instead of me just kind of riffing on this, let me just let God's word speak. Because James 2 is a great application of Matthew 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 18, 10. 
What does James 2 say? He, he addresses it really well. James chapter 2, he was writing to an ancient church, and he says this. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality. That's a fancy word for saying favoritism. Other translations of the Bible say, show no favoritism. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And here's an example, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, translation 2021, if a guy pulls up to, a, to the church in a Ferrari and a slick suit, back to the Bible, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God, here it is, he doesn't despise the little ones, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Paul, he wrote a very similar thing in the book of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 16. He's writing to the church in Rome. Here's what he says. Straight command. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So don't all of our hearts need this reminder? especially in a culture that worships celebrities. Jesus, James, Paul, they're saying, if a celebrity walks into church on Sunday morning and then a, a Christian homeless person walks in, no distinctions, zero. They get treated the same. Image bearers of God. Respect, love, honor, Period. And that exposes my heart. That exposes my heart. If I'm honest, that exposes my heart. Man, I, I know in my heart, just as real as it gets, I gravitate towards favoritism. I never say it out loud, but if I'm honest with my heart, I think if we're all honest, do our hearts bring a sense of a need for repentance here? And Jesus is saying in verse 10 to the, to the leaders of the first church, his first church planters, he's saying, don't do it. That's not my way. That's not my heart. And then he tells us why. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Well, why, Jesus? And he's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. For... Here comes the reason. Here comes the foundation. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, isn't this interesting? We could preach a whole sermon on angel angelology. We're not going to do that. It's not the point of the text. But it's like Jesus in passing says, check it out. In some sense, these lowly ones, marginalized ones, they have angels. So does this mean that we all have guardian angels? You know, some, some people have thought that through for a long time, that every believer 
has a guardian angel. Now, I don't think this text gives enough evidence to make that claim because what does it say? It doesn't say that they're guarding them. It says that these angels see the face of God. They're in the presence of God. They're not down here guarding. No, they're in the presence of God. They're not in the presence of the lowly one. They're in the presence of God. They're angels. So in some sense, lowly, marginalized people, Christians, have, have their angel, whatever that means. We don't know what that means totally, but Jesus says it. So in some sense, they have an angel, and their angels see God's face. They're in the presence of God. What does this mean? They see the face of my Father, verse 10. Well, what is presence, seeing the face of the Father, being the presence of God? What does that mean? That means access, and access is given to those who God loves. Those who have value to him, right? So Jesus is just pulling back the curtain a little bit in the courts of heaven. And he's using this, you know, just real brief statement, no explanation, to say, if their angels are in the presence of God, that means these people are of value to me. They're connected to me. They're connected to the angels. Angels are connected intimately, seeing the face of God. That's a, that's, a, that's a way of saying intimacy. They're connected to the angels. Angels are intimately connected to God. And that means they're all connected. Point being, guys, these marginalized Christians that have nothing to offer in the world, they're valuable to me. That's the point. So we can't brush them aside. And now he's just going to draw this out even more with an illustration that they can really understand, okay? Jesus is going to use an illustration that reminds me of those times when we thought we lost one of our kids. And more specifically, it was always our oldest, Taylor. The, the next three, we got four kids, and the next three never got lost. With Taylor, we thought we lost him like three times before the age of three, or four. And I've, I've told some of these stories before in sermons, but that was a while ago, and a lot of you um, weren't here then. So I'll just review one of the times that we got Taylor lost. Um, it was always just my wife. I was never around my poor wife. So I had to endure these horrible things. In, uh, in, just in passing, um, every time one of our kids has had to go to the ER, I've never been around. I've either been out of town, at a conference, or on the road, doing music, or whatever. So she's had to endure, endure the ER, and she's had to endure losing the kids, my poor wife. And so, or losing Taylor. So one time, uh, Taylor was playing upstairs, and Kim was downstairs doing something, and she, she called to Taylor, and he didn't respond. And she said, I know he's in the house. What the heck? And so she starts looking for him. Can't find him. Starts looking more and more and more, calling out, Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. Like, did he, did he leave the house without me knowing? And so she's calling out to him. She cannot find him. No response. Can't find him anywhere. 
she calls me. I'm at, uh, we were living in Albuquerque at the time, and uh, I was at church in my office working. She's crying. And I'm like, I'm on my way. I'll come home right now. So I'm driving on the way home. I get a call from Kim. Well, she had found him. What had happened was Taylor, when he was little, he loved to build forts. He was an, a little engineer even back then, like he is today. And he was building a fort. He was just using blankets. And the fort that he built just looked like a pile of blankets. And so he built this fort that all it looked like was a pile of blankets on the couch. And he crawls in there. And then as little kids do, after lunch, he gets tired and he falls asleep. And Taylor, when he sleeps, he sleeps hard. And so she's calling out to him. Well, he doesn't have a clue. And so she has no idea that Taylor's buried under this pile of blankets that he had built and no response. And so finally he woke up and was like, Mom, what? And he really wasn't lost. He was there all the time. It's a horrible feeling. It happened at the mall one time. It happened one time when Taylor went next door and Kim didn't know he was next door and told the neighbor lady that, oh, yeah, my mom knows exactly where I am. She didn't. Horrible feeling, right? Horrible feeling. Now, if a lot of you have kids. A lot of you have multiple kids. Here's the point. If you lose one of your kids at the mall and you've got three other kids, do you ever stop and say, well, hey, we got three other ones. They're, they're good kids. We'll just let that one go. It's no big deal. Just The mall can have him. No, we never say that. That's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. We're not going to rest till all the kids are in the house, safe and sound. Every single one of them has value. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, but he uses a different metaphor that the people of his day and time would really relate to. Look at verse 12. He says, what do you think? Meaning, think this over. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Just like our kids are valuable to us, if you're a shepherd in the ancient world, those sheep are currency. They're all really valuable. Verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Like that sense of euphoria when the kid is lost in the mall and you find them, that doesn't mean you don't love your other kids just as much. It just means there's euphoria because you value this one so much. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these, here's that word again, one of these little ones should perish. But see, from a human perspective, in another sense, they're just sheep, right? And if you lose one out of 100, well, 99% is pretty good, right? Statistically speaking, 1% isn't that big of a deal. But, 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 but what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to not look through the world's lens, but look through his lens and what the world says is insignificant is very significant through his lens. How do we know that? Because he says there's rejoicing. There's rejoicing 
when one of these little ones marginalized is removed from the margins and restored, is welcomed into the community of the church, is not shunned or despised, left to the world just to be discarded. No, but welcomed in. Bring them in. Bring them in. Because the values of the church are not the values of the world. That's what he's saying. They're valuable to me. The world might say they're not valuable, but all Christians are valuable to me, even the ones that have nothing to offer. He says there's rejoicing over them. Do you think about God as rejoicing? When you think about God, do you think of God as a rejoicing God? Is that one of your categories for him? Man, for me, that's not something I think about a lot, that God rejoices over those that are lost. I mean, it's not something that the Bible says very often about God. So when it does say that he rejoices, take note of when he rejoices. When the lost are found, when the marginalized are brought in, when, when, when the church doesn't have a hierarchy, but all are loved and respected and honored as image bearers of him and those that are united to him. Think back to the discussion of celebrities. Like how we're tempted to treat them differently. Like if we're hosting a party with 99 normal people and one super celebrity, like Tom Cruise is at the party. And that celebrity, maybe at the party they've had too much to drink. And it's winter in Madison and they go wandering off into the night, too much to drink. People would go out of their way to try to find the celebrity. Make sure he was okay. They're an important celebrity. But Jesus is saying the opposite here. He's saying the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. The kingdom of God should work this way. That if one lowly, humble person with nothing to offer has no clout or social status, is at your party, has a little too much to drink, wanders off in the night, you're going to go after them just as hard as you would go after the celebrity. That's what Jesus is saying. He wants all 100. He wants 100%. 99 isn't good enough because his love extends to the 100%. He's jealous for those who are his. That's the point of this text. So let's close and think about some applications of this text. I think one real easy one is, man, we reject celebrity culture. Especially we want to reject Christian celebrity culture. Where we give preferential to the cool kids. Where we give preferential to the important celebrity people. And man, we live in a celebrity culture, and so you can see how that could just sink into and seep into Christian culture. The internet just pours, pours gas on this fire. And there's Christian influencers on Instagram. What does that do to our hearts? You go to a conference, and the conference speaker is revered 
like a celebrity? Are you tempted to be impressed by a Christian on Instagram having thousands of followers with perfectly crafted photos that don't reflect reality? There's so much celebrity status that's baptized in the name of impact for the kingdom. We look at megachurches with awe. Well, just because it's a megachurch might mean there's a lot of faithfulness there, might not. Numbers don't tell the whole story. Perseverance will tell the whole story. See, remember, God always loves to turn the values of the world upside down. It's another way he's doing it here this morning in this text. Christian conferences, revering authors and speakers, Instagram followers by the thousands or millions, all of that might not be all bad, but it's dangerous. Check your heart. Let this text check your heart. We're tempted to worship human celebrities when there is only one true Christian celebrity, and that is Jesus, period. So if a celebrity, Christian or Christian, were to walk in this room during a worship service, we shouldn't care because there's only one celebrity, right? Jesus is a celebrity. We're here to worship him, not another human being. Because our hearts should be so enravished with Jesus and who he is and what he's done that nothing, no movie star, no millions of dollars, whatever, nothing should draw our attention and our affection more than Jesus. So in that same sense, when someone comes in that's lowly, has nothing to offer, we don't have to have negative emotions towards them. Because Jesus is my desire. And he lowered himself for us, see, Christmas and the incarnation, and was as lowly as it gets as he's nailed naked to a cross to bear our sin. That's as humbling and ostracized as it gets in the ancient world. And he lowered himself to that for us to save us. So someone that's lowly walks in the church and, and, and they're a Christian and they want to participate in Christian community, we're enabled by the spirit of that same Jesus who died for us, living in us, to love that person. And we can also love the celebrity. We're not going to have to be impressed by them. Well, yeah, we can love them all. We're not impressed. We're not, we're not people pleasers. We're not showing favoritism. We're free to love anyone and everyone. So let me close with this encouragement. A lot of us feel really lowly in the eyes of the world, lacking in power, lacking in influence, lacking in clout. Believe it or not, you might not think this about me, I feel like that a lot. Just because I'm the one that is up here talking the most doesn't mean that I don't feel that way a lot. And the good news for me and for you is when you're feeling really little, and in some sense, all of us should feel that all the time in light of God and his greatness, right? 
This text says Jesus is on your side. Jesus is for you, not against you. As you humble yourself and stay humble, as uncomfortable as that is, that's where the presence of God is. That's where your life in Christ is found. That's where joy is long-term. That's where satisfaction is long-term. So just stay there. Forget the world and its hierarchies. It doesn't matter. Those hierarchies are going to be leveled on the day of judgment. And the only hope you have on that day, like we're saying, is my hope is only Jesus. So be encouraged this morning. For those that are lowly in the world's eyes, which should be all of us in some sense, this should be the most encouraging verse in the world. Jesus does not despise you. He will not let you perish. John chapter 10 says, no one can snatch you out of his hand. You're secure. You're held. You're loved. He will never let you be lost for eternity. You are his as you come to him and humble yourself like a child. So forget the values of the world. They're going to fade. But God's values will remain for all eternity. Let's pray.